We'll be reading this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible with you, our Frontlines team is bringing some up right now. And you can borrow this for the morning or take it home with you if you are in need of a Bible. So once again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll start in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as has already been said, happy Easter, friends. Now, I'm also going to do something here that for some of us will be lost on. Uh, But what I would simply ask you to do is I am going to say he is risen, and then you're going to say back to me, he is risen indeed. Okay? So he is risen? He is risen indeed. Very good. That is from my childhood. I love it every time we get to do that on Easter Sunday morning. And today we are going to be talking about how the resurrection of Jesus actually affects everything and how it changes everything for us. Before we do that, however, let's take a moment to quiet ourselves. Um, As we just heard the news of what's going on in Sri Lanka this morning, uh, and here we sit um, comfortably in our chairs. May we not forget uh, the martyrs whose blood is the seed of the church, and be reminded of Christ, what Christ has done, and that his resurrection actually gives us hope in light of these tragedies. So let's take a moment to pause, consider, before we move forward. So Jesus, we do thank you that we are able to be here this morning to be able to celebrate your resurrection. We pray right now for our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, those who have now at this point entered into your presence. We pray for those that are left. We pray that we would be encouraged by the faith of brothers and sisters and that Jesus, you would remind us that it is through dying that we truly come to life. So we give you this time today. We thank you for the resurrection that is our hope in the midst of suffering. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I want to start by doing a little bit of an experiment with you, and I'm going to put a couple of phrases on the screen. Don't put them there yet. Don't put them there yet, Missy. I'm going to start with a phrase on the screen, and I want you to acknowledge for yourself, I'm not going to ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell them how the phrase makes you feel. I just want you to acknowledge for yourself, both physically how these phrases make you feel, and emotionally how this phrase makes you feel. Okay, so here's our first phrase. You are enough. How does that make you feel physically, emotionally? You are enough. Now you might say, well, what do you mean enough? Other words for enough are adequate, sufficient. So you are adequate, you are sufficient. How does that feel? Let's go to the next one. You are not enough. You are not enough. How does that sit? How do you feel about that one, both physically and emotionally? Now, if I had to guess, I would say the majority of us would probably consider the second phrase, you are not enough, to be a little bit closer to home. Meaning that when you hear the first phrase, you are enough, there's something that goes, um, I don't think that I am. And then in the second phrase, you say to yourself, okay, that's more like it. That's actually a phrase that I've been telling myself since I woke up this morning. Brene Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, says this about not feeling or being enough. She uses the term scarcity to describe this. Scarcity thrives in a culture where everyone is hyper-aware of lack. Everything from safety and love to money and resources feels restricted and lacking. We spend inordinate amount of time calculating how much we have, want, and don't have, and how much everyone else has needs and wants. What makes this constant assessing and comparing so self-defeating is that we are often comparing our lives, our marriages, our families, and our communities to unattainable media-driven visions of perfection, or we're holding up our reality our own fiction, against our own fictional account of how great someone else is. And so as a result, we all struggle with being and feeling like we are actually enough. Now, there has been a movement within our culture to fight this view of you not being enough. And the way to do that is to simply believe yourself, that believe enough in yourself to say that you are enough. So I actually searched Google to see uh, how, much of the, how many things would pop off if you just put in, like, you are enough. And so here are some of the images when you go to images to see what happened. This first one, note to self, relax. You are enough. You have enough. You do enough. Or the next one, you are the only person you need to be good enough for. Or this next one, you are enough. You are so enough. It is unbelievable how enough you are. Or this next one, this is a letter written to self. Hello, I don't know everything about you, but I know what you are not. You are not your job title. You are not how many friends or followers you have. You are not what you wear. 
You are not just your religion. You are not only the color of your skin. You are not your parents. You are not who you were as a child. You are not your test scores or your achievements. You are not the words others use to describe you. You aren't even what you see in the mirror. There are no words for you. You are, and that is enough. Love me. Now, forgive me, but I am extremely skeptical of this you are enough movement, especially given the culture in which we live, in which you are comparing yourself constantly to what is going on around you. And so here's a couple of questions that I have. What if not feeling enough is actually a sign to the fact that we aren't? And what if our attempts at believing that we are enough are actually getting in the way of experiencing true freedom? Because here's my hypothesis. The feeling of not being enough are actually a sign and an invitation to someone that is. The feeling of not being enough is a sign and are actually a sign of an invitation to somebody that absolutely is. So with that, let's explore the scriptures to see who it is that might be enough for us in the face of all of our feelings of inadequacy and sufficiency. Now, as I've been doing recently, I want to root ourselves in God's true story. And in the very beginning, we have creation. We know this. Genesis 1 and 2, we have creation. And I want to put a verse on the screen for you that I believe is this beautiful enough statement, this beautiful, sufficient, adequate statement that we have here in Genesis 1, verse 31. This is a summary statement at the end of the first chapter in the entire Bible. Here's what it is. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is a verse of, it's enough. It's adequate. Everything is sufficient. God has created everything. He's created humanity. He's in relationship with humanity. Humanity is in relationship with him. The relationship is enough. Nobody's walking around and saying, I wish I had more of this. I wish I had more of that. Everything is succinct, sufficient, adequate, enough. Well, as you know, if you follow the story of the scriptures, things don't stay this way for very long. But it shows us something. It shows us that our desire to be and to have enough is actually pointing to something. It points us back to Genesis 1 and 2, which says there was a point when everything was enough, where God was enough for people, in which that perfect relationship existed. So the desire for adequacy, sufficiency, or enoughness is actually one given to us by God. Yet the story of the scriptures also describe for us why every single day people wake up and they do not feel like they are enough. The fall. And here is a verse from Genesis chapter 3 that I think is also a great summary verse of what happens. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. An interesting verse, right? We're obviously being introduced to a couple of things right here. One is that human beings no longer feel enough. 
They no longer feel comfortable in their own skin. Notice as well, it's not just the woman that needs to put on clothes. It's also the man that recognizes that he feels like the body that he has been given needs to be covered up. So both men and women experience this new idea, this new concept of not being enough in which then shame enters in. I am not enough. I am not pleased with my body. I am not pleased with what I have been given here. The desire for humanity was to become like God when they already made in the image of God, and look what the effects are of it. Their eyes are opened, and they feel shame. Now, this changes everything, and the result is inadequacy or not being enough in both human nature and in human nurture. What enters is at the core of the human heart is a longing for more and a desire to actually have it filled. And each of us know deep down that we are enough, that something is actually missing. And scripture points repeatedly to the fact that God was to actually be enough for us, but we pursued sufficiency apart from him, and we actually continue to do that. You're not enough for me, God. I need something else. Yet it doesn't work. That's our nature. But then there's also our nurture. Now, I'm going to show you an experiment. It's called the theory of the mind, and it was developed by Simon Baron Cohen. And this is from my therapist, who's brilliant in drawing our minds to this. Some of our missional community leaders will be aware of this because we, we had her come and speak at an MC Leaders Training Day. This is the experiment. It's the experiment of Sally and Anne. Sally, if you start at the top, and we're going to work our way down. Sally begins with a basket. Anne begins with a box. I don't know why Sally is the one with the basket. I don't know why Anne is the one with the box. Just trust the fact that one has a basket and one has a box. Uh, Sally also has a ball. Wow, fortunate for Sally. Sally puts her ball in her basket. Anne is left with her box. Sally decides, I'm going to go away. While Sally is away, Anne, sneaky little Anne, moves the ball from the basket to her box. Interesting, Anne. Now, when Sally comes back, where is Sally going to look for her ball? What do you think? Where is she going to look? You can shout it out. Basket, right? Why? Because Sally wasn't there when the ball was moved. And so Sally's going to assume, I have a nice friend named Anne, and Anne's not going to steal my ball, and so I'm going to find my ball in my basket. Now, each of us in the room, as we shouted out basket, cognitively, we reasoned with the fact that Sally trusts Anne, and so she's going to look in her basket. If you were between the ages of two and five, which as I look around this room, is nobody here. And you're following this analogy. You're, you're going through this together. They will say back to you that Sally will look for the ball in the box. Because they do not have the cognitive ability to rationalize and reason with the fact that when Sally comes back in, she's going to look for the ball where it is. Because look, that's where it is, obviously. Interesting. Okay? So that's the comprehension of a two to five-year-old. Let's use an analogy 
of how this now affects the way that we nurture our children. So this next image is a picture of a parent and a child, okay? This also is from my therapist. A parent and a child. And the parent is sad, and the parent is tired, okay? It's been a long couple nights. It's been a difficult few days. And so the parent is tired, feeling it, you know, it's, it's been a tough, tough few days. So the parent's feeling it. The child is there then standing beside their parent. And then the child asks something. We can go to the next slide. The child comes up to this tired parent and says, book, or can you read me a book? You know, if you have young kids, you you understand this. This happens like 20 times every single day for me, and usually 10 of those times are the same book. So, you know, you're like, okay, here we go. It's going to end up the same, you know. But anyways, the child asks you, can can you please read me a book? And the parent is going to say back to the child, if they're feeling tired, oh, no. And that's, that's the next one. No, I'm, I'm not going to read you this book. I'm tired. The last thing I want to do right now is read, you know, one of these books for the 15th time. No, thank you. I do not want to do this. Now, the child at that point has to interpret why their parent said no. And so the child is going to come up with three different reasons in their head as far as why this parent said no. And these are the three reasons. The first one, if we start at the bottom, is, well, my parent is tired but still loves me. You know, reasonable little child, right? Oh, my goodness, you understand that I'm tired, but you know what? I still love you, so, you know, we'll read a book later, right? Okay, so that's one option. Second option is my parent is bad. My parent is bad. Third option is then I am bad. I am bad. Now, if we are to take the Sally Ann test, the theory of the mind— and discover for ourselves what two to five-year-olds can actually rationally discover and figure out, you realize that the first option, my parent is tired but still loves me, actually isn't a legitimate option for a two to five-year-old. They can't cognitively reason that out. And so what they're left with are two other options. Either my parent is bad or I am bad. Now, if we are intended to survive, and we are, in fact, anti-fragile, which is easier to live with? I have a bad parent, or I am a bad person? I am a bad person. And that's what the child chooses. So if we go to the next slide, the child believes that they are bad, which enters this huge level of this new thing called self-hatred. I am bad. I got in the way of my parent. Now, What is the result of all of this? Not only do we come into the world hardwired with inadequacy, we are also raised in environments that will not provide adequately for what we need. So here's the summary, and I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to tell you up front, it's very negative, but we're going to end up at some hope eventually here, okay? But this is what this means. As inadequate beings born into an inadequate broken world, raised by inadequate parents, we are all destined for inadequacy. See you later. I told you, as inadequate beings born into an inadequate, broken world, raised by inadequate parents who are not going to give us what we actually need, we are all destined for inadequacy, not having enough, not feeling enough. But here's the secret, okay? And some of us need to hear this. You are not enough, but guess what? Nobody is. You and I are not enough, but here's the thing. Nobody is. And here's how that changes something, for starters. We all think that there are people that are enough, that are sufficient, that are adequate. No, 
None of us are enough and sufficient. Nobody is. Okay. So a few questions enter our minds at this point, right? Well, is this it? Can this be solved? Is there a way forward? Or do we simply accept that we aren't enough? But if we were meant to be enough, is there actually a way back? So re-enter my hypothesis that the feelings of not being enough are a sign and an invitation to somebody that absolutely is. The feelings and the reality of not being enough are a sign and an invitation to someone that is. And the next part of the story of God, we had creation fall, is that Jesus Christ enters the scene and he is absolutely enough. Last week, Spencer did a beautiful job explaining to us what atonement is. Atonement is the need that we have for an amends to be made with God. In the Old Testament, God introduced a sacrificial system in which animals' blood was to cover the sin of humanity. But as Spencer taught, the animals' blood was insufficient. It wasn't enough to cover the sin of humanity. And so another sacrifice was needed or animal sacrifice would need to be continually made. And so Jesus Christ enters the scene as both God and man, and he's able to take on the sin of humanity on himself because he is a man. And for it to be taken care of, he needed to live a perfect life, which he's able to do because he is also God. So Jesus Christ enters in and is enough. But still we ask the question, well, how do we know that Jesus' sacrifice was enough? The answer to that question is the resurrection. How do we know that Jesus is enough? The resurrection of Jesus. Romans 4, verse 25, beautiful little verse. Who, speaking of Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus was delivered up for the atonement, to make amends with God. But then secondly, he's raised for our justification. By raising Jesus from the dead, God is affirming Jesus' work on our behalf and demonstrating his absolute approval of Jesus' work of suffering and dying for our sins. Jesus' work is complete. The penalty for sin was paid for, and therefore Jesus did not need to remain dead any longer. Three days later, he was raised up, forgiven. I love the way Eugene Peterson in Romans 4, verses 22 to 25 puts it. Abraham, speaking of the uh, Abraham from the Old Testament, he was declared fit before God by trusting God to set him right. But it's not just Abraham, it's also us. The same thing gets said about us when we embrace and believe the one who brought Jesus to life when the conditions were equally hopeless. The sacrifice Jesus made us fit for God and set us right with God. Atonement and the resurrection is declaration enough. The point the resurrection of Jesus is a declaration that he is enough and therefore you and I don't have to be. 
The resurrection of Jesus is a declaration that he is enough. And therefore, you and I don't have to be. When you're struggling with the reality of that there's only two options, of either I have to be enough or I got to wallow in the fact that I'm not, the gospel comes in and says, no, you are not enough, but Christ is enough for you. He has done everything required so that you can stand before a holy God and through faith and belief in him be declared innocent because of Christ. And also it helps us in our inadequacy of realizing that we continually mess up. That Christ's sacrifice is enough for me. So I, you know, did this job of preparing this message about parenting of little children. I messed up terribly this morning with one of my kids. Terribly. He got up, and he gets up before us all the time, and uh, he usually takes his markers and draws on paper. But this morning, a decision was made of, I want to be a superhero. And so a marker was taken and drawn all over hands to, to, you know, make superhero hands, and then on his feet to make superhero boots. Washable markers, okay? So, you know, we wake up, I get into the shower, I get out of the shower. It's like, comes in, hey, Daddy, look at this. Wow, that is something. That's really interesting. Okay, so it's, okay, you know, got to keep going. You know, it's Resurrection Sunday. Wonderful. Okay, go downstairs, <laughs> make it my breakfast. Um, then something starts like, okay, so he's got marker on his hands and his feet. Kind of cute. But if that gets in the least bit wet, that's going to run. We've made the decision that white is a nice paint color from time to time, a little bit modern that way, I suppose, on the walls. So hands, washable, crayon markers, wet, walls, white. Oh boy, this is a problem. <laughs> and so continue to get ready. And uh, my wonderful wife is like, Kate, you know, we got to start taking care of this or else this is going to be really bad. And of course, you know, when you try to tell a superhero they can't be a superhero any longer, uh, you know, things ensue. And so things ensued. And then I, you know, tried to be, you better listen to your mama. So then I enter into the scene like, we're taking you to the bathtub and, you know, we're going to get this off. Well, then that just like, you know, sky was coming down. And he's not five yet. I am not enough. He's not potentially in this moment getting what what he needs. What's he interpreting about this moment and how I'm responding to him? We're constantly reminded of the fact that we are not providing to our children what they need. How do you live with that? How do you come back from that? You point your kids to Jesus because he is enough. Because you need somebody that is for your kids. And if you're enough for your kids, you don't need Jesus to be enough for your kids. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We are found to even be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he is raised, has raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. You're not enough. Deal with it. But if Christ has been raised, then Christ's sacrifice is enough. And you don't need to bear the weight of that any longer. The freedom from needing to be enough comes through the death of self and being raised with Christ. You know, I understand the cultural movement of like, just tell people like they're good, right? There is some like beautiful reality to that of like, you know what? There's going to be those like superstars, you know, you're, you're average and it's oh, totally okay to be average. But what gets missed is the huge reality that if you and I are enough for ourselves, we really don't need Jesus. And we desperately need Jesus. We need our hearts to be changed. We need new hearts. That's Jesus' point. He dies. We're called to die to ourselves, to take Christ, to take his life in exchange for ours. So here's the reality. It's both a warning and it's an invitation. The warning is that outside of Christ, you are not enough. You're not enough for God. You're not enough for yourself. And you'll spend eternity apart from God. Yet the invitation is, I am enough for you. Will you receive this from me? Take my sufficiency, take my adequacy upon yourself. And you are now enough, both in the eyes of God and and you're struggling around yourself because I am called to be enough for you. So trust me in what I have done for you, not what you want and want to do for yourself. He is enough. He is enough. And this invitation is available to anyone that believes. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever takes his gift of sufficiency, of adequacy before God and with self, you shall live everlasting. You shall not die because Christ has been raised from the dead. We do not need to fear death because we shall live forever. Incredible. And how do we move forward? Because those of us who trust this, there are times where we still feel inadequate. How do we move forward? Well, one, we look forward to a day, the restoration, when all will be restored and God will say over his creation once again, very good. Right? Don't you long for that day? When you're staring in the mirror and you're like, Jesus, I trust. I got to trust that you say that I'm enough. And so I'm not stoked about what I see here, but I got to trust. I'm trying to trust Jesus that you're enough. How many be enough? I look forward to the day where I'm not going to be worried about this any longer. Right? That's to come. This side of the resurrection, but this side of restoration. 
And in the meantime, what we have to be doing is we pursue Christ and we desire to become more like him in the everyday. And this is the process, the theological word of sanctification. We become more like Christ. I love how Sam Alberry describes this. He says, sanctification is how God effects in our lives what he has already declared us to be. Sanctification is how God effects in our lives what he has already declared us to be. And that Christ is enough, so we are enough, but still we don't feel enough, but we're growing more every day to become more like Christ so we can begin to experience that. It's how God does that in our lives. And over time, we do become more like Christ. We do. And these are some of the symptoms of what it looks like to become more, more like Christ and trusting that he is actually enough. First thing is that we're going to accept. We're going to accept that we have strengths and weaknesses and we're going to see our weaknesses as a gift that deepens our walk with God. We're going to accept that we have strengths and weaknesses and we're going to come to see that our weaknesses as a gift actually deepens our walk with God. I've been so encouraged by the, the ministry of a guy by the name of Scott Sauls, and I think he's the one that coined, he's like, I've got to lead with a limp. You know, I so struggle sometimes to believe that I've got to give, you know, the most efficient sermon in the world. I've got to be the most adequate pastor that there ever was. Yet I'm reminded here that, like, if I can do that, then what do I need Jesus for? And the scriptures... <laughs> they tell us that when we are weak, then we are strong. That we need to acknowledge that we have weaknesses. We need to acknowledge that we're not enough. Because then we can look and point to Jesus. So we accept that we have strengths and weaknesses, and we see our weakness as a gift that deepens our walk with God. Secondly, we accept that we are average by getting our worth from knowing God's personal love. These points are also from my therapist as she described what does it mean to be a spiritually engaged, growing adult. It's to accept that we are average by getting worth from knowing God's personal love. How does that feel? She wrote this little like five or six page thing called It's Okay to Be Average. I hate it. <laughs> she said it'd be in like second, my, second section, my second session. She said, you know, it's okay to be average. I'm like, no, it's not. Because why am I here seeing you if I just want to be average? You're supposed to help me be amazing, right? <laughs> if the process is one, it's like, no, it's okay to be average. And thirdly, we feel safe in our own skin and embrace God-given agency and responsibility. We live vulnerably, and we point others to Jesus. You know, Brene Brown, I gave the quote earlier from Daring Greatly. She gave a TED Talk that's become one of the most watched TED Talks. Maybe you've seen it. It's called The Power of Vulnerability, I believe. And um, a really interesting book. What, what's missing from the book, and I don't know if she comes from a Christian faith perspective or not, but what's missed is, like, what, what motivates your vulnerability? Like, what would actually want make you want to be truly vulnerable with other people. Um, I mean, if you're approaching things from like uh, an evolutionary perspective, you'd have to come to the point of like being vulnerable actually helps your human race or your species continue to exist. 
And then that's sort of backwards because it's the survival of the fittest, so you got to be strong. So what actually, like, drive vulnerability to get over your shame and your self-hatred? In the Christian community, according to the good news of the gospel, we can be vulnerable because Christ has died for us, and he's come back to life. So I don't need to sit in my shame and self-hatred any longer because Jesus has come back to life. Everything that God requires has been granted because of Christ, has been given by Christ. So I can actually now be vulnerable with you because I know that Christ loves me and has forgiven me. So I don't got to worry about the fact if you're going to love or forgive me, I've got God's ultimate forgiveness and love. And then what that allows us to do is point to Jesus and say, he's the one, he is the one that is enough. I can't take credit for this illustration as we close, but I thought the illustration was brilliant. It's from another preacher. And you know at a wedding, you know, typically the bride is wearing a white dress. Imagine one of the um, bridesmaids was feeling particularly, um, maybe a bit jerkish, but also like a little bit like wanting some, some confidence and showed up like not in the bridesmaid gown that she was given, but in like a beautiful white gown. Um, you know, imagine the scene on that, on that wedding morning, already all the other things of like hair and all the makeup and all that sort of things. And suddenly like a bridesmaid walks in and is like, hey guys, I found this like beautiful dress. Like I even got it at Plato's closet. So, you know, I didn't spend a lot on it, but isn't it beautiful? Like totally white, it's great. And everyone's like, what have you done? Like, you're not letting us really celebrate the bride here. You're trying to take some credit. Our role as followers of Jesus is to point to him and let Jesus be Jesus. He is the one. Now in the scriptures, I realize the analogy breaks down because you know we are the bride. He is our groom. But follow with me for a little bit to say, that we cannot take responsibility away from Jesus or try to take credit for what he has. We're to point to him. So stop trying to be Jesus and point to Jesus. Live in your weaknesses because then you can point to his strength. Trust the resurrection and the good news of the declaration of enough. Enough. You know, Jesus on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. It is finished any feeble human attempts to overcome shame and self-hatred on their own. And through the resurrection, we can trust what he has done for us. Guaranteed, all of us walked in here this morning believing that we were not enough in some way. See that as a sign and an invitation to invite you to the one that absolutely is. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ and the fact that he is sufficient and adequate for you, I'd invite you to put your trust in him and what he says over you. Forgiven, beautiful, deeply loved, not guilty. And I invite you, if you'd like, to come to the front as we're singing, responding in song. And we'll have a team of people here that would love to pray with you. Let's pray and thank Jesus for his resurrection and what it means for us. So Jesus, I thank you that you came back to life, that God the Father declares over you what is now possible to be declared over us and is our reality, that we are forgiven, that we are enough 
in you, not in ourselves. Forgive us for any vain human attempts to be enough. And may we instead be a vulnerable people living in our weaknesses, leading with limps, so that we can point people to you because you are enough. And so we don't have to be. So we thank you, Jesus, for the resurrection. We thank you that you have risen and that because of your resurrection, we will one day rise as well. We'll see you face to face and hear over us, well done, good and faithful servant. God, we need new hearts and you offer them to us. We need to be changed. Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and to fill us. If we walked into this room as believers, but God, maybe we were believers believing a false gospel, that it's our works that save us. Pray that you would remind us of the truth of the gospel, that it's our faith in Christ that saves us. And a life of faith, the result is a life of works. But it's not what saves us. Or God, maybe we walked in the room today and we believe it's simply faith that saves us and we don't have to do any works we've justified and said because you're loving it doesn't really matter what I do but we also recognize that that is a false gospel that you Jesus are enough we need your sacrifice we need your life we need your death and we need your resurrection and that because of those things we can point others to you so today we want to worship you. We want to thank you for the gospel that declares over us that we are not enough, but we don't have to be because you are. Remind us of that today, whichever area of our lives we're struggling with that, those feelings and those truths. In your name we pray. Amen.